Hello friends, I'm Ashish Tarbari, founder and CEO of Axomize, and to new listeners, welcome, and to the old ones, welcome back. Today in-house, I have a very exciting uh, person. Um, I, I was having a chat with him just before the podcast recording started, and we were discovering common roots. So without further delay, I would like to welcome Amin Shokralahi, CEO of Kando Bus. Hello, Amin. Thank you very much for coming in. How are you? Hello, Ashish. Thank you. I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. No, it's a Big pleasure. Honor. It's a pleasure. Uh, I've been uh, I've been following you a little bit uh, recently, thanks to uh, Nanette Collins, and um, and I was I was saying to her, look, we should find time to talk because <laughs> we we seem to have a lot more in common than what might appear in the first instance. So, hey, I mean, we're going to talk about what Kanjo does and what is your uh, main USP in the business side. But I want to get to know you better and I want my audience to get to know you better. So tell us about yourself. Where were you born? What is your journey to science and engineering? How did you end up where you are? Sure. I was born in 1964 in Tehran. That was a different time, a different government, different time. I was born into a, you know, sort of a lower class from a society perspective, uh, family. Ah, so you have and, a, you uh, had a class system back then. Like, well, not really class, but you know, it's, it's a somewhat a poor family. Right, right. Class. So you know, my family. Oh, economic was class. Then, yeah, economic in, uh, class. Right. I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. But uh, so my family realized when around the time I was born, maybe a bit earlier, that the path to um, to better future is education. Mm-hmm. So they kind of made everything happen so people get more educated. So an uncle, he's uh, he, well, two of two of my uncles are math professors at this point, and one of them took it upon himself to teach me math when I was a kid. You know, to just to give you a, a flavor. When I was five years old, it's not about sort of counting, right? It's about real math. So he was teaching me axiomatic set theory at the age of five. Oh wow! So, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that it is in a, 1969. So at that time, set theory was not as uh, you know commonly taught as it is nowadays. In that is right. So he was teaching it to his students in the university, and then he was using me as a guinea pig. Anyway. <laughs> um, and so, and then very soon after, he started teaching me geometry, right. Euclidean geometry, because this is really the true uh-huh. um, thing of logic, right? Right. And you know, giving me sort of geometry problems to solve and. Uh, but he was never, you know, if I, so if he gave me a problem, he would say, you will work on it until you solve it. I'm not going to give you a hint, nothing. You will do it. Sometimes I would sit on the problem for a week. Then, of course, you solve it after a week. You really feel happy. So I think that's what it taught me was you really need to sit through things mm-hmm. and, uh, and see them to the end. And uh, so generally, it was also very scientifically interested. So... This is how I got kind of into really math at the beginning and uh, science uh, later. So the first four grades, I was at a school in, in Tehran for gifted students. Right. It was uh, And then I switched to German school in Tehran. They had a uh, program for you know, purely Iranian students mm-hmm. to get them through to the end of high school. Right. And the promise was that at the end, we would have two high school degrees. Right. One German one and one third one. And it was a fantastic school. It was right. really, I can, and uh, so the school, of course, did also a lot. They, they realized that I'm mathematically gifted and they were offering me all sorts of uh, programs 
maybe I think maybe in the US they call them honor programs or stuff like that to to go beyond what uh, what you usually would do in high school. And so um, you know the, the German school system comprised back then 13 grades. So after the 15th grade you had your uh, diploma. Mm -hmm. So when I had finished the 12th grade, the new government, the post-revolutionary government of Iran, closed down the school. Right. But mm -hmm. the um, but the school offered us an opportunity to go to Germany and finish high school, at least. And it just so happened that on the day we left Iran, um, the war between Iraq and Iran started. So a few hours after we departed, the airport was bombed. Wow. And all flights out of Iran were canceled. So 1980 we are talking about. This that one. was 1980, exactly. Yeah. 22nd of September 1980. So when we arrived in Frankfurt, uh, we thought, well, this is kind of a skirmish, maybe, you know, it's, it'll die down in a few days. But it took eight years. Mm, eight years, yeah. About a million dead and injured for the war to finish. Must be quite traumatizing for somebody at your age to have to, you know, leave the country and you're leaving for education and then these political events. Yeah, happen. it was. At the end, at the same time, it, I was with my classmates. So it was fantastic. You know, it was like a journey together. And this has bonded us in such a way that we still, to this day, every two weeks we have a Zoom call on Sunday evenings, and then we kind of, you know, and they are spread all over the world, right? And we talk, and uh, we have a really good relationship, like family. Also. All right, so I finished high school. Then I went to Berkeley for about two months. One of one of my uncles, the brother of the uncle who taught me all the things, mm -hmm. he was doing his PhD in math in Berkeley. Right. And I didn't have really money to stay in Germany for uh, until my um, uh, university started. So they said, why don't you come over here and stay with us for two months? And then you also see new things. And this is where I really understood I absolutely love mathematics. You know, the, the real mathematics, really the, you know, how do you, how do you find these structures? How do you prove things and so on and so on. And then uh, fortunately I got a scholarship from the German government to, for my studies. I went back to Germany, and on that scholarship, I was able to finish my math studies. So and your PhD, PhD. So your PhD was from Berkeley, right? Oh uh, no, my PhD wasn't. Um, I studied. I was in Germany, yeah. And I, my uh, PhD was from the University of Bonn, but then I left for Berkeley as a postdoc. Right. So the first time I was in Berkeley, I promised myself I'm going to go back there. Yes, yeah. fantastically. So once I got the opportunity to go there as a postdoc, I did that. And it was originally supposed to be a year, but then the year became two, it became three. Right. And later I went to Bell Labs mm -hmm. um, as a member of technical staff. Right. And uh, after two years, I came back to California again because I joined a startup called uh, Digital Fountain mm -hmm. as their chief scientist. So we were doing you know, data transmission over impaired networks. So which year was this? I went back in the year 2000. Right, right. Okay. So that was yes. fairly recent, so, I'd say, yeah. Hmm. That's right. So I went to Berkeley after my PhD in 1995. 1998, I went to Bell Labs. 2000, I came back to California to join Digital Fountain. Mm -hmm. 2003, I went back to Europe to join uh, EPFL as a Faculty. Right, yeah, yeah, it's very well known, EPFL. And then yeah. Digital Fountain was sold to Qualcomm in 2009. And uh, yeah, in 2010, um, I sort of 
literally fell upon the ideas that uh, gave rise to kind of I see. Okay. Very. So what I find very interesting is you were basically a mathematician to the core from your very early years, four or five years of age. But you wandered into electronics quite naturally, which is not very common uh, for mathematicians. Yeah, it wasn't very natural. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, accidents sometimes can, can yeah. appear natural, right? especially the good ones. No, I mean, well, I don't, I'm not an electronics engineer. I mean, and I have to always tell my engineers, you know, look, guys, I'm not an electronics engineer. You don't come to me with when you have any electronics. If you have problems with math, I can help you. And, uh, and what is really interesting is that if you know math very well, you can abstract things out and solve problems that you will never solve if you don't have an abstract view. And so that is really what I do uh, for the engineers. So this is this is amazing because you know I, I do formal verification and I, yes. I'm pretty sure you you know what it is and yes. abstraction is the backbone of not just yes. formal but also computer science but also what you're doing in electronics and it's not always taught to children and then students and it's also not easy in the context of abstraction shifts as you shift from domain to domain and it's fascinating listening to you thinking. Um, a mathematician who's actually now heading a chip design company is focused on engaging with engineers with you know abstraction in mind, which is <laughs> which is not quite yeah. it's it's not the norm. It's not what CEOs do, but but very um, very very fascinating. So let's jump to Kando. So you started Kando which year was it? 2010? 2011. 2011. And yeah, the ideas I had were in 2010. And the I company mean, was starting in 2011. Possibly the ideas were festering for years, right? I mean, they, they kind probably, of... Yeah. Probably, yeah. I mean, in a way, it was... So I was working with a postdoc on a completely different problem. Mm -hmm. was designing channel codes, which is really my area of expertise, for mm -hmm. DSL lines. Mm -hmm. And he started telling me about differential lanes here, differential lanes there. And I you know, what the hell is differential lanes? And he explained it to me. So, you know, you send two bits over, you know, one bit over two wires, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I asked him, so what do you, what do you do if you send 20 bits? So, well, mm -hmm. you take 20 differential pairs. Mm -hmm. So, well, there's just no way that this is efficient. Right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming from a sort of coding theory background, this is exactly, you know, the kind of thinking. And this is exactly the transfer, right? You need to abstract the problem out. Mm -hmm. And then I, I understood that, well, you know, if you do it something differently, you can do it much in a much better way. And I was completely convinced that this is a known uh, idea, that the industry has looked at it and so on. But we did a search and there was nothing like it. So tell us a little bit more. So let's start from the beginning. So right now your company makes power efficient uh, bus fabric. Am I right in thinking something? Yeah, like you know, yes, that is a service, if you will, but not a traditional one. Right. But the service that does serializer, deserializer over a collection of wires, not necessarily two. And is it is it between chip to chip necessarily, or could it be within the chip itself? No, it is really off chip. Off chip. Yeah. So why did that struck a chord with you? Why not on chip? So why did you focus on chip to chip? And I mean, I know that chip yeah. to chip. Well, is the there. problem that that uh, my postdoc presented to me was off chip. I so see. That's what I saw. Okay. But then later I realized the on chip. Fortunately, I didn't do on chip because on chip is in a way. Not more difficult to solve, but more difficult to bring to market, because you need to work with a um, 
in the EDA company to have it as part of the tool so that when you to place and route, etc. Mm-hmm. That is all there. Right. And that's not so easy. I'm not. I'm not saying off chip is easy, but on chip would have been perhaps uh, even sort of more difficult in some ways to to productize. Um, right. Yeah, this is really the reason. So, so the off chip. So your focus is high speed Certis um, protocol. Is that right, or is that a big yes, family? Yes, high speed Certis. Yeah. Uh, and what we want to, you know, what you know, when you step back. You look at this communication link, mm-hmm. and you look at it from a point of view of a communication theorist, mm-hmm. like I am in a way. And you, the first question you ask yourself is, what is the capacity of this channel? How many bits can I send per hertz or mm-hmm. you know, whatever you are? Mm-hmm. And the striking thing is that when you compute this, you realize that what the industry is doing today is a factor of hundreds sometimes lower than what you have as them. And still, the industry is thinking, oh, maybe we should go optical, which is just so much more expensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, I come from a frugal background. So mm-hmm. why go optical when you have still such a long way to go mm-hmm. to fill the capacity of electrical? Mm-hmm. Right? So then the next question that comes to mind is, all right, if the capacity is that, how are you going to get there? But the, the thing about Shannon's theorems is it tells you, you know, what are the, 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 the things you can surpass, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. So we have means of getting to the capacity of these channels. And of course, you know, I know wireless very well through my time at Bell Labs, and I know how much importance was given to this in wireless. Why not wireline? It's mm-hmm. much bigger market. Mm-hmm. So are you saying right now your company is the only company in the world making these products? Or is it because you have a niche in low power as well as high speed that gives you? I wouldn't say we are the only company that there are many companies that are building similar products. Mm -hmm. But I think we are the only company that is uh, geared to or that that has this mindset that we want to get the capacity. Mm -hmm. And we are not necessarily bound by legacy. Mm -hmm. All other companies are bound by legacy. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to make whatever is legacy just implement it better. And you know, get so you 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 basically started everything from scratch, so yes. you find it a lot easier, clean slate. Um, mm-hmm. So there's this thing about your technology, which is, has to do with retimers and uh-huh. redrivers. Can you explain to us what what exactly yes. are these and why are they relevant? So, so these are interestingly, they have nothing to do with this uh, general service that we are developing. It just turns out that all the methods that we have developed for our signaling can also be used in legacy signaling techniques. And this retimer is based on kind of a legacy signaling. So why is it important? If you look at USB, and this is what we're looking at, the speeds um, of USB have uh, increased or doubled almost from one generation to another. And USB 4, the latest one, um, allows you to send and receive 40 gigabit per second of data between two devices. Mm, that's now, very fast, yeah. That's very fast, mm, right? Mm. And really on a pair, it's 20 gigabit per second. So you're sending very high frequency signals from the CPU all the way to the um, peripheral device. Mm-hmm. But you know the thing about this these channels is that high frequency signals um, fade. They get lost. So there's no way you can go in one shot from your CPU to the peripheral device. Impossible. You need sort of chips in between that 
um, somehow work as a relay station. They take the signals, they recover the signals, and then they send it across the next uh, um, segment of the of the link, be the cable or whatnot, right? And so the USB implementers forum has recognized that this is a problem, and they're mandating the use of retimers. So in other words, if you don't have a retimer, you don't have USB four. Where is the retimer actually built? Uh -huh. Is it built on the chip that is like if I have the, the USB four? No, the retimer is just a, a discrete chip. Mm -hmm. And to think about it, every USB C port of a device that wants to be USB four compliant needs one of these retimers. So and then, if you have an active cable, you find retimers on either end of the cable, and so on. So, given that the transmission is such high speed and, and high frequency, I mean, there is a there is an equation with power, right? Which is higher the frequency, yes. more power is consumed. So, how do you then take get into this the power equation? Because a lot of the time, the USB might actually be sucking out the power from the laptop or some other device. That is correct. Right? That is correct. So, so, so there is power that is spent on the CPU, mm -hmm. which is which is uh, acting as the C as the USB host. Mm -hmm. You don't have any control over that. This is the CPU companies mm -hmm. have to do that. Mm -hmm. But on our end, all the design technique. You know, we have about four hundred patents. Right, a large number of these patents are about implementation techniques of our own signaling. It just so happens that the signaling that's used for USB is a special case of our signaling. So we have, you know, we have put all our resource, our patent resources, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. the kind of things we have been doing over the years into this mm -hmm. to make this as power efficient as possible. Right. So I want to dig this into a little bit more. So do you end up then just designing the IP or the actual silicon? No, we designed the actual silicon. Actual silicon. And yes. who is your end customer? Are you able to say these things? Well, you know, if you're you're obviously using a computer right now. Yeah, yeah. Chances are that the computer you're using to talk to me is one of our end customers. I see. Okay, so that's pretty much entire laptop. Um, laptop, desktop, right? Peripheral devices, and etc. Et and they're using and they're using one of the chips on the motherboard basically. Yeah, they will. I mean, right, right. now the chip, I mean, right now there are many few systems that are supporting USB 4. Right. But right, very right, soon, right. I mean, next year already, you will find a lot more of those systems and you will find our chips in those systems. But what about USB 3? Clearly you were also doing USB 3 yeah, before. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. chip also supports legacy, which is USB yeah, 3. Yeah, yeah. And it supports Thunderbolt 3 and, you know, whatever else. Yes. Right, right, right. Have you ever considered, given such high-speed communication is happening off-chip. I know it's slightly different. Could any of this technology be useful for uh, 5G or, or Wi-Fi? Ah, I don't think so. And the reason is that it really depends on the noise. Of the, you know, the nature of noise on these channels hmm. is what dictates the modulation. Mm -hmm. So our modulation technique is really geared towards the kind of noise you find in wired communication. I see. Okay. And so that's why, you know, we can probably use it there, but, you know, the techniques that people have developed for wireless, they're already pretty good. And how big is this market for off-chip communication? Well, you know, if you take the entire market, that's uh, really big. That's, you know, the X, it's definitely more than 100 billion. But, um, but obviously it's, you know, it's a total available market. And then if you look at the SAM, it's, it's going to be a lot less. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that is also why one of the reasons. So if you look at IP, you, you know, you can be a successful IP company. There aren't that many in the world, right? Arm was one. And so what we did, what we, we looked at this and said, well, what is the maximum I could possibly make on IP if everything went my way? Hmm. Then what, what we realized was if we built the right chip, that one chip alone can make us as much money as our entire IP portfolio. So this is why we have uh, expanded our business model. And, and where are your teams based? Are they all in Switzerland or are they distributed in US? No, we're distributed in Europe. Okay. So we have design centers, obviously, in Switzerland, it's the headquarters, in Germany, in Denmark, um, several in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we have uh, people in the US, you know, Jeff on this call is, mm-hmm. is uh, the US. And then we have uh, sort of support and sales in Japan and in Taiwan. Right. And I suppose the manufacturing part of it is all TSMC it, or one of it's these. It's Taiwan, yes. It's yeah. TSMC. Yes. Yeah. But we have, we, are, we pride ourselves in a very, in an amazing uh, supply chain, TSMC being one of them. So what I'm, what I'm trying to understand and, and decode in my head is you have a very specialized product and it is this one product that you make, which is amazing. Do you ever think that you've put all of your eggs in one basket and would it would it be also? We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, so tell me, what are, other, what, what are the other what are the other baskets? Are, there are other products that are coming down the pipeline. They are okay. Now that we know several things, we know how to build high quality chips for high volume production. This is not a skill set that you know. I mean, this you have to learn it. And we had partners who taught us this skill set. So now we can go and build other things. And you know we we are we know how to build retimers, and USB retimers is just one type of retimers. There are other protocols that also need retimers and uh, products that we will you know come to market with. I can't give you specifics. Sure, but, sure, yeah. Um, you know, product roadmaps I've understood is uh, is much more uh, much more protective of product roadmaps than of our technical uh, details. Um, so yes, there will be other chips that we are we are already designing them, and they will be coming to market probably next year for other markets. So you know the USB is consumer, this device to device communication for consumer. But you know, much bigger market is of course um, you know servers, data centers, and mm-hmm. networking. Mm-hmm. So what is the typical time to market for this? So if you were if you knew what you were designing um, on you know week number two. How long would it typically take for you before it's um, production ready? Uh, it depends a bit on whether the chip is mostly digital or mixed signal. Mm-hmm. Mixed signal is really hell on earth. <laughs> mixed, very complex mixed signal mm-hmm. uh, chip. And you know our Matterhorn chip is mostly mixed signal. So. If it's uh, mostly digital and you know you just go down the normal product development path, especially with sort of our chiplet approach, you should be able to have new products after maybe twelve to fifteen or sixteen months of design time. Okay. And then whatever time it takes to productize it, maybe up to a year after that, mm-hmm. and then you have ready products for the for the market. So it could be two to two and a half years before yes. it hits the market. And how much of this time, you know, we are verification people. How much of this is verification time? A lot. A lot. <laughs> so, you know, 
it used to be that for every digital designer, you needed maybe half the verification person. Mm. Right? Mm. Then the equation changed was one to one. It's not one to two. Well, it depends. For for processes, Harry Foster's reported in December that it is for one CPU designer, you need five verification engineers. Oh, even that. Yeah, possible. You know, I think as you go into more advanced process nodes, it may become even worse. That's correct. Mm -hmm. But right now we work with kind of for digital design processes, one to two. And then, of course, we have mixed signal verification as well, which, as you know, is a completely different beast. Um, that number is not as large. And maybe it should be, but right now it's very difficult to find very good mixed signal verification people. Mm -hmm. Some of the verification task is actually laid upon the shoulders of the designers themselves. I see. But you really need a dedicated mm -hmm. team mm -hmm. of uh, mixed signal. Mm -hmm. And I am I am I reading into this to, to understand that a lot of your verification challenges tend to be mixed signal rather than digital. And that's where a lot yes, of the time gets sure. spent. For sure. I see. It is, you know, as we, we talked about abstraction, right? Mixed signal doesn't have the kind of abstraction that digital has. So therefore, verification is uh, anybody's best guess. That's what I understand. Like if I mixed signal verification people are listening, my apologies. <laughs> I mean, mixed signal can also have abstraction and you could consider digitizing, concretizing this um, analog domain, but it's it's not clear what what the methodology should be. And is there any chance you use formal methods for your verification or is it primarily? As far as I know, we do. Okay. But I'm not myself a verification person. Sure. I try to go a bit deeper and understand what they're doing, but you know, very quickly I, I realized you know, it's a second career. I can't, and it's, it's of course, you know, uh, at EPFL where I'm a professor as well, um, I have very many colleagues who are experts in formal verification. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've been talking to them to get up to speed. But yes, we do use form. But at the end of the day, we are also bound by what the tools can offer us. Mm -hmm. I mean, for digital technologies, for, for problems that are purely digital, the tools are pretty good and very yes. mature. And if you get the methodology right, you can get a lot out of formal. But I, I'm not sure if you want, if you want to share, but what, in your view, is actually the success rate of your first time turning around? Am I you able to turn the chips around first time, or do you think ah. does it take you know? Oh, we've got it ready. It will take. It will take multiple iterations hmm. for sure. I mean, I hope we will get to a point, you know, in in reasonable future hmm. that we can that our first silicon hmm. is production silicon. And yeah. this is true for, I think, the more sort of digital chips we have, mm. the more um, probable it is. But the mixed signal is just, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, after I started this company, I'm amazed that the, the, the computers and telephones, whatever we're working, that they're actually working. <laughs> you're, saying, you're, you're, you're saying what I say all the time. I'm surprised the world is still working. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think if you're an engineer and, and you know the complexity of what we look at, then it does beggar belief as to how we're still able to drive the cars and... and, um, and it is true. I mean, look, yeah. you know, by designers, they design these mixed signal things, right? They have to take into account that, the, that every transistor is a random variable. 
right? It's random, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then you have to, they have to design it in such a way that you get a yield of 99%. And not just that, the temperature drops to negative 40 degrees. The transistor, you can't recognize something completely different. It goes to 120 degrees, hmm. something completely different. I mean, imagine if your chip is deployed in Vancouver today. For example, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So. And, we, you know, and some of our, you know, at least, at least you know, in terms of IP, they go to outer space. So the temperature requirement there is obviously very different. <laughs> and the effect of alpha particles. And yes, that on top of it. Yes. Transient force. But I, I so how can they design it? I yeah. don't. How could you? And, and actually, what I really liked is, as you were so honest, and you said, you know, you don't always get it right the first time around, which is, um, which is very nice. <laughs> Not <laughs> everybody says that. I know. <laughs> it is true for almost all companies. You just don't say. Really. <laughs> I know it is not something, um, but, but but you know the complexity of chips is such that. I suppose when you reach a point when you're actually only spinning the run-of-the-mill designs yes. and then you can reach a point where you have a fixed point on verification methods. But if you, and, also... you know, for us, it's even more, right? Um, so, so you, you, a lot of, and especially for Matterhorn, that was a, an R&D project. Mm. with a capital R. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So my ideas, they have to, act, because we put so many new things in there that mm. have never been done in the industry before. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my engineers were sometimes hating it, but I was saying, yeah, we have to, we have to, we have to. So obviously, you know, something's going to get, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're doing standard stuff, then of course, things are very different. Or what's the fun of only doing standard stuff in engineering? <laughs> in engineering? Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost lost track of time while talking to you, and I realized we've almost reached the half an hour. I mean, I don't want to um, lose the opportunity of asking you this question. I always ask my guests, and I, I think you're one of the best placed people to answer this, given your experience in living in this different continents and countries and also doing things so different. Um, there are a lot of people who listen to our podcasts, I mean, who are students, graduate students uh, or professionals. And I always like to sample this from my guests as to <clears throat> what would be those five tips if you can give us? Um, what are the things these listeners should do in their early careers to be successful with engineering? I mean, it could be compute, it could be electronics. What have you, what have you is, got to there say? There's only one tip. I don't need five. Right. Well, Go for what you like. Find out what you like, Passion what you're is. passionate about, yeah. and do that. Don't don't look at oh, is Facebook hiring me? Is Google hiring me? Is Intel hiring me? No. By the time you're finished, we will see a completely different world. But if you do what you're passionate about, chances are you can do it very well. Hmm. And if you're doing that very well, chances are that there will be many people who want to hire you. Afterwards. If you want to do, go into a company. If you want to go into an academic career, even more. So do find what you like and go for it. So sometimes I have this situation and I've seen with uh, young people, they think they like something, so they go for it, but they actually don't really know um, yes. how hard or complex this thing is going to be. And I often wonder um, for experienced people, if we could actually give them a structured pathway into exploring different types of things mm. and then they discover that this is where their heart actually lies. I remember when I was 
14, my mom was doing programming in C++. And because she was not giving me time, then I said, I will never, ever get anywhere close to computers. <laughs> and I really never, ever thought I would go and pursue computer science, never mind formal verification or whatever else I do. So sometimes it takes time, isn't it, to understand and appreciate as opposed to following the, oh, machine learning is the hype, so let's go with machine learning, right? And do you do you offer internships at Candle? We do, yes, absolutely. Okay. So if people wanted to work for you as an intern, they could actually go to your website and... Well, not to the website. They probably have to contact me directly. I see. I'm easy to find. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. Um, okay. And, uh, and we work with EPFL, for example, mm-hmm. at this university next door, and uh, we have those programs. I think... You're absolutely right about that. How do we figure out what we like? You have to obviously look at many different things. But one thing that is important is, you know, you really have to have the stamina to go through hard times. Yeah, well said. Well said. You know, if if yeah. you don't have it, mm. that is going to be very difficult to do anything. Indeed. And the schools don't teach you how to cope with failure. And... Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, there is one mathematician, one of my favorite mathematicians. His name is Leonard Euler. He's a Swiss, was a Swiss mathematician. Mm-hmm. And he's the only mathematician I know who also wrote up all the things that went wrong when he was trying to prove a theorem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you go to his collected works, it fills shelves over shelves because he has all those. And this is at least as important as the methods that work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. We don't do that. I mean, you can't write, you know, if I write about the theorem and my attempts to prove it that were all wrong and send it to a journal, they will not publish it. Nobody will publish no. it. No, no. And I, and, and I totally agree with you. And I think this is a really valuable um, suggestion is to make mistakes, document them, don't necessarily repeat them, but learn from them. Whereas yeah. um, my my. my teacher in, in college used to say, once you're learning C, oh, it's good you're making mistakes because you're learning. If you always wrote a program that worked, you will learn nothing um, yeah. because you would then have, um, you know, knowledge given to you from somewhere else, <laughs> not 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 acquired in the field as it yes. were. Very well said. Very well said. And on that note, I think we can wrap up and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's a Again, pleasure. As I said, it's an honor. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So, friends, I hope you liked today's chat. Do go to Kando's website. Uh, there's tons of very interesting stuff in there, if, especially if you're interested in high-speed off-chip communication. And as Amin said, he's very reachable, approachable, so you could find him on LinkedIn or from the website of Kando. And let's stay in touch, and we will be back soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>